0: in a word of prayer. All right, let's pray. Oh, Father, you are good and gracious, and we are so thankful. We are thankful for life and, and rain and all of the, the blessings you've poured out on us in the past week. Um, uh, pray just even now you would bring to mind some of those blessings that you have, that you have blessed us with, um, and most most namely the, the blessing we have in Christ of forgiveness of sins and, and redemption into your, into your family, into your kingdom. Um, pray that we would focus this morning on your word, that we would give our full attention and devotion unto it, and that we would grow in our understanding of you um, through our understanding of your word. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The lighting is all different in here, I think, because there's no sun, so everything is a little weird. (laughs) Um, But today we are continuing um, our study through the Old Testament, and we are nearly done. Probably about three more weeks in this study, Lord willing, after maybe two. Two or three more weeks in this study after this week. Um, But I just want to provide an update on the schedule. Next week we are not going to meet in the Sunday School Hour because of the July 4th holiday. And then the week after that, which will be July 10th, we are going to have one of our, our missionaries come and provide an update on their ministry during the Sunday School Hour. So this is going to be the, the, the last meeting in this study for the next two weeks. So just mark that on your calendar. You should still come on the 10th um, to listen to that update. It will be very good. But today we're going to begin our study in the final section of the Old Testament, if we're following the Tanakh ordering of the Hebrew Bible, which we are. And the the last book, remember, is called The Writings. The Writings. I can't remember the name in Hebrew right now. Um, But the first half of The Writings continues kind of what we've seen in in the latter prophets, right? the, The commentary of the prophetic literature. Before uh, the narrative of the Old Testament resumes with the book of Daniel, with the book of Daniel, and so Dempster follows an ordering of the Tanakh that starts with the book of Ruth, in this section. So we're going to start in the book of Ruth. You can turn there. Ruth is a very interesting book. I really like the book of Ruth, uh, but it's interesting, especially when it's placed in this location, in our Old Testaments rather than then chronologically located after judges and before the start of of 1 Samuel like 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 is in our English bibles and it's interesting because it's the the only narrative book in in the commentary on the narrative storyline of the prophets and writings and until right the historical narrative picks back up in in Daniel so it's a narrative that, that is sandwiched between the, the poetry of the, of the latter prophets and the poetry after this book of the book of Psalms to the book of Lamentations. Um, and so what we see in the book of Ruth is that it takes the reader back in the historical timeline to the period of the judges, and it functions as, as a flashback of sorts. A flashback in the Old Testament. And Dempster argues that, that the book of Ruth focuses on, on information relevant to the questions of exile and the absence from the, front, from the throne of a member of the line of David. So exile and the line of David. And so we see in Ruth the themes that we've seen clearly throughout the Old Testament story. right? Genealogy and, and geography. We see a, a family from Bethlehem goes into a, a type of exile because of a famine and returns to a, a depleted promised land with its male members dead. So, so we've seen so far in, in the storyline of the Old Testament a threat right against the genealogical line of promise. And we've seen that threat primarily through... Um, the barrenness of women in the story. We saw that often in Genesis um, and with, with Hannah in 1 Samuel. But, but now the threat to the dynastic line in Ruth is actually through dead males, through the dead men. And so Dempster goes through just a quick outline of what occurs in this story and it really is just an amazing story if you just read it. It's just an amazing text um, of what occurs in there. Lots of great things happening. Um, we see that a famine forces the family of Elimelech and Naomi from Bethlehem to Moab. Remember that, that when you, you read Moab, Moab has been the, the traditional enemy of Israel up to this point in the storyline. So, we need to notice immediately they're, they're leaving the, the promised land to a pagan land. So, it's sort of, you could think of it as a, as a proto exile. And, and as the story unfolds, we see that the line of Elimelech and Naomi is marked by death. So, Elimelech dies. Uh, His his sons grow up in the land of Moab. They they take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, who very quickly become widows because the the sons right of Elimelech, they die. And so the prospects for the family look very dim, specifically the, the family line. Because Naomi is well past childbearing age after her husband and two sons die. And when she hears that Things have gotten much better in the land, the promised land of Israel. She, she decides to, to return back to the land and to leave Moab. Her two daughters-in-law decide to accompany her, but Naomi urges them to stay. Her reasoning is that even if she were to produce another son, which was physically impossible at her age, to her understanding, it would be too long for the, for the widows to wait to marry him, the, the new son, in order to produce an heir for Elimelech. So this is a, a reference to leveret marriage institution uh, and laws of the time, where, where the widow's brother-in-law or male relatives had a responsibility to raise up um, a child for the widow's dead husband in order to continue his name and, and specifically to maintain his land so his land could be passed through his line. So the issue for Naomi and her daughter-in-laws was there was no apparent male in the family of Elimelech for this to occur. So Naomi, in despair, and really I would argue there's some dispute about this, but I would argue Naomi lacks trust in Yahweh in the narrative. She's not acting rightly. Um, But she tells Ruth and Orpah to stay in Moab, to stay in their homeland. Orpah uh, accepts the advice of Naomi, stays. But Ruth remains undeterred, and she returns with Naomi to Bethlehem. She leaves her home to go to the promised land with the people of God. And Dempster argues that the the remainder of this short book is primarily about geography and genealogy. And you can see this in kind of the the questions and tensions in the narrative, which are these. What is going to happen to the land of Elimelech? And what is going to happen to his family line? What is going to happen to his land? And what's going to happen to his family line? And as we've stated, right, and in, in the story, it seems hopeless um, for his land and his line. Um, the book of Ruth, I would say, also provides an analogy of sorts to the history or for the history of Israel, and we can see some of the value of placing Ruth in this part of the Old Testament canon, because the book of Ruth then can take on a sort of parallel role or or a story describing the situation of Israel in exile. So notice these connections. A a family from the land of promise is exiled into a pagan nation with little hope for a future seed. Does that seem like a a similar theme that we've seen um, in the overall storyline and the historical narrative? I think so. I think that's intentionally done by by the editor of the Old Testament to be a a parallel or, or sort of a mirror story of the larger story of Israel. Where there seems to be, right, there seems to be no hope for David's line, but from that bleak situation there is hope born. right? The same truth we see played out in the book of Ruth. Now, in the, the narrative of Ruth, Ruth eventually marries a relative of Elimelech. Every time I say that name, I think of the Lion King. Is that anyone else? Yeah, Elimelech, Elimelech. I'll probably ruin the name for you. Okay. So Ruth marries a man, Boaz. And if we fast forward to the very end of Ruth, we see something very important. In the text, in Ruth 4.11, we see the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, and all the people and the elders of, of Bethlehem wish Ruth a blessing. And this blessing, they say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, who together built up the house of Israel. So we can see in this blessing, I think, Ruth and Boaz continuing the the building of the house of Israel with the birth of Obed, whose birth continues to build not only the the national house of Israel, but also the royal house of David. As we see in the conclusion of the text of Ruth, the almost astonishing comment that, that Obed became the father of Jesse who we know, right, became the father of David. And verses 18 through 22 of chapter 4, we see a genealogy of David, which is the only genealogy that that is found at the end of the book in the Old Testament. Or maybe that's just the writings, but I'm pretty sure that's the whole Old Testament. Um, And the the effect of this genealogy, um, and this is a, a claim made by Dempster, but also many other biblical theologians, is that, the effect of this genealogy is to tie this little story of Ruth explicitly into the much larger, uh, the much larger story of the Old Testament narrative. And the, the first thing we can notice is that, if we're just looking at this genealogy, is that it is a 10-member genealogy. A 10-member genealogy. Light bulbs should be going off in our head when we read or when we see that. We've seen this before, right? Think back, uh, all the way back in Genesis. I think this echoes back to two other 10-member genealogies in the Genesis narrative, right? The genealogy of Adam to Noah in Genesis 5, and then the genealogy from Shin to Abram, or Abraham, in Genesis 11. And both of those genealogies were massively significant, and had, had soteriological implications or, or salvific implications for the entire human race, which I think sheds light on the importance of this ten-member genealogy, the genealogy of David. So David, we could think of, is, is one in the mold of, one in the line of Adam and Noah. And so Dimster argues that the function of this ten-member genealogy, especially set in the context of, of the exile, is that it keeps the reader on track, so to speak, the reader of the Old Testament. Or it, it ensures to the reader, the reader that, that the movement towards a divine goal of history or a divine plan within history has not been forgotten, even in the exile. Dempster writes this. He says, The little story of Ruth has been caught up in a much larger story, one that led from Adam to Noah to Abraham, and now from Judah to David, forwards towards the goal of history despite hardship, tragedy, and death. Right, Those hardship, tragedy, and death characterizing um, the the exile, life in the exile. But Ruth also doesn't just have implications for the, the Davidic dynasty, the story shows pretty explicitly how the Davidic dynasty has implications for the nations, for all of the nations, which should not surprise us in the least if we've been um, paying attention to the promises in the, the Old Testament so far of all these promises of universal rule and blessing to the nations that would come from the line of Judah and the line of David. So Dempster points out where this is explicit in Ruth is used by the phrase we find in Ruth. We see this phrase several times. It's under the wings is the, is the phrase in English, under the wings. So you can see this in Ruth 2.12, where Ruth meets Boaz. And he praises her for finding refuge under the wings of Yahweh, or under the wing of Yahweh. So this phrase denotes protection and blessing. It's kind of the idea. And Ruth reminds Boaz of his um, responsibility as a, as a kinsman-redeemer to Elimelech in Ruth 9. She tells him to spread your wings over your servant, to provide protection and blessing over your servant. So again, notice that this wings or, or blessing-protection language. And so I think we can make the connection that, that Boaz's marriage to Ruth, we need to remember Ruth is is a Gentile, right? She is not an Israelite. She's a Gentile from the nations, anticipates the nations finding refuge, protection, and blessing under the wings of the Lord through a Davidic descendant. Um, And I think that's a really beautiful and and powerful connection that we can see in in Ruth and in the rest of the Old Testament as the story develops. So that is Ruth. Ruth. A great story. Any questions or comments about Ruth? Yeah, does anyone know the answer to that? That's that's one answer, yes. That's true. That is right. Yes, I I think that's exactly right. And I think you can contrast a little bit with Naomi's response, who is, she's in despair... Not trusting in Yahweh. Um, I do not think she is a virtuous character in the story. Um, but again, there is some debate about that, so y'all can disagree with me. I don't know. It seems right, right, Naomi? What do y'all say? Naomi. Naomi. Naomi that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Naomi? That's better. Oh, man. I'm not going to pronounce any of the other names for the rest of this time, except David. Oh, wow. Did I get Elimelech right? Okay, good. Elimelech, okay. All right, so let's move on to the book of Psalms. Psalms, it's a, a glorious book, Um. And really, I just want to say this, the, the, we're going to take the Psalms in very quickly from a very 10,000 foot view, so we're going to be jumping from different text to text, so don't get frustrated. Um, but the first thing about the, the Psalms that, that Dempster points out is that it is a primarily, it's primarily a book about and authored by David, by King David. In fact, Dempster's subtitle of this section is called The Psalms, David, 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 which just emphasizes the central role that, that he plays in this book. So 73 of the Psalms have the name David in their titles. I think we can uh, assume that he's the author of these Psalms. And the Davidic Psalms are, are purposely p- placed in, in each book of the Psalter. So the Psalter, which is just the name for the the collection of all 150 psalms, they're broken up into five different books that make up the one book of psalms. And Dempster argues that we can see from the structure of the Psalter the the twin eschatological themes or, or end times themes of line and lineage or dominion and dynasty pretty clearly. And we can see this in the, in the first two, two psalms, which they're, they're often called the doorway into the Psalter. It's just a fancy way to call it the introduction of the Psalter. Um, it's largely believed these, these two psalms go together thematically and sort of set the thematic tone for the rest of the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 1, we see the, the blessed man who, who meditates on the Torah, on God's law day and night, and that man will be planted by river, like a tree planted by rivers of water. And right, we see this man contrasted with the wicked man who lives in his sin. There, there are connections here in Psalm 1 3 with, with the tree planted by the streams of water that, that point back, I think, to the, to the tree of life in Genesis, and the, the river of life flowing from the new temple in um, the vision in Ezekiel 47. So the point is that the righteous person's life resembles the Garden of Eden or, or the New Jerusalem. But notice that there's, there's clear themes here of a paradise-like geography for those who submit to, who delight in God's law. Psalm 2 stresses the importance of the Davidic king and his universal rule. I really like Psalm 2. It's a great psalm. So all the nations will one day bow before the Lord's Messiah. I'm just going to read Psalm 2, 7 through 10. Psalm 2, starting in verse 7. I will tell of the decree... for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So notice the the language of nations and the ends of the earth being this Messiah of the Lord's possession, being this this king's possession. And he will crush, he will destroy his enemies. Um, and Dempster points out that that thinking of the wider context of the whole canon of the Old Testament, it's very hard to miss the allusions here. A Davidic king, right? so genealogy, a Davidic king will rule over the entire earth, geography or, or dominion. The, the text looks back, in a certain sense, to, to David and forward to the universal reign of his descendant that we, we've come to see all over the Old Testament and all of these different prophecies. He, he's referenced in this psalm as the Lord's anointed, or, or you can, that's Messiah in verse 2. He's called uh, a king in verse 6. I think most interestingly, he, he's called a son who, who is begotten of the Lord in verse 7. So, I think this text pretty clearly, right, and and pretty specific ways points forward to the Lord Jesus. And Dempster points out that the the first two Psalms provide a perspective perspective on the storyline of Scripture thus far. What he means is that the the Psalter functions to, to keep hope alive for the people of God by indicating that that Israel is still expecting an an all-conquering king who will be anointed by Yahweh to rule the world. Right, An all-conquering king who will be appointed by Yahweh, by the Lord, to rule the the world. And something interesting about the, the, the second psalm is that we get a window into the world that shows great resistance to this rule of the Lord's anointed. And we see that that through this Messiah's universal dominion, the the obliteration of all resistance to his throne. The obliteration of all resistance to his throne and the and the need for complete submission to his kingly rule. So it's it's really an awesome and inspiring, especially, I think, when we think of our, our current culture and just society around us, which seems to be rejecting God and, and, and His kingdom and His ways more and more, right? This is just a great reminder. Yahweh is not shaking in His boots up in heaven, right? He Jesus reigns, and He's reigning right now. But the the point here in the context of Psalms is that at the very beginning of the Psalter, there's an... The, an end times expectation of the Messiah's rule over the entire earth. Of the Messiah's rule over the entire earth. And the strategic placement of this psalm being at the beginning of the book of Psalms functions to affirm that the, the validity of that truth, of, of the Messiah's reign, of, of Yahweh's reign, despite all the subsequent psalms of, of lament, which would seem to indicate there, there's something wrong in the plan. And so what we see as we unfold the book of Psalms more is that David is emerging as what Dempster calls the, the focus of the Bible. And specifically, he's, he's talking, I think, of the, the Old Testament text. And in some ways, the, the hopes of the entire people of God are placed on David and, and especially his genealogical line. The, the 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 hope of the people of God is placed on David and his line's shoulders, you could say. And we see the centrality of David if we look at the rest of the Psalter as well. So the first book of Psalms is Psalm 1 through 41. And they consist largely of laments, Psalms of David. And the first and last Psalms of this division, if we... If we uh, don't take into account the introductory psalms. So Psalm 3 and Psalm 41, we see treachery towards the king from his own son in Psalm 3 and his closest friend in Psalm 41. So it's good that both of those psalms, right, you you see... uh, an emphasis on a betrayal of someone close to the king. That's good as we consider a later Davidic king who will be betrayed by his closest earthly friends right upon his death on the cross. But what we see in the Psalms is despite the lament and suffering, God gives the king triumph over his enemies. So in the, the second book of Psalms, we see more laments, psalms, more more psalms of lamentation, but Dempster argues we, we can also see a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, a, a hope for a brighter future, especially in, in the ending of book two in Psalm 72. So in Psalm 72, which I can hear you turning over there, you can get there, um, in it, we see the day when, when the Davidic king will rule the earth. He will bring an end to all injustice, and, and justice will actually flower in the land. It will be the vegetation of the land. We see nature being renewed, much like we saw in many of the, prophetic, um, the later prophetic works. Psalm 72.8 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And this is almost a direct quote of Zechariah 9.10. Um, we also see very similar language to, to Isaiah 60 and, and verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 72. And, and Dempster argues that the, the last lines of the psalm, starting in verse 17, reaches its thematic climax with the statement that, that echoes back to the, the Abrahamic promise of blessing on the earth. Blessing on the earth will be realized in the future Davidic king. Right, We see the response there. The response is, is doxology or, or praise. Um, and the psalmist declares that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God, who alone does wondrous things. So this wonderful... Um, Praise of the Lord for his future rule of all things. So, book three of the Psalter largely points to to disaster for the nation and exile. And and what we see is that the people of God are called to have faith despite the the current bleak circumstances of, of the exile which, remember, is a result, right, of their sin and their unfaithfulness, right? This is not some unjust thing that's occurring to them. This is exactly what God said would happen if they persisted in their sin, and it's exactly what there is occurring because they persisted in their sin and unfaithfulness. So this is the the direct message of Psalm 73, which opens up the, the third book. It's a psalm of wisdom, a wisdom psalm. We see that the... The triumph of the wicked is apparent, it seems to be apparent, but it's not actually real, right? The triumph of the wicked is not real when the psalmist goes into the sanctuary, into the place of worship in verse 17, right? You could say his perspective gets properly aligned when he's worshiping the Lord to see that the, the end of the wicked will come even though they appear to prosper on this earth. Book 3 ends with a, with a poem in Psalm 89. I told you we were going to go fast. Psalm 89, which contrasts the, the dual realities of, of the present situation for Israel, exile, judgment, and the absence of, uh, an absence of a Davidic king but it contrasts that with the reality and promises of the enduring throne of David that we saw back in 2 Samuel 7. And, and remember, remember back there to, to God's covenant with David and his dynastic line, one that would be everlasting, right? Some of these types of promise. So one striking thing about Book 3 of the Psalter is that it contains one Davidic psalm, which is Psalm 86, and what we see in Psalm 86 is, is wonderful. We see David is in the day of trouble, which indicates he, he's suffering in some sense, and he identifies himself as the servant of, of the Lord, a servant of Yahweh. So he, he's a suffering servant, David, who uses language that harkens back all the way to, to Exodus 34, where, remember there, that's where the Lord declared his, his character to Moses in the cleft of the rock. So, so look at verse 5. For you, Yahweh, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And then jump down to, to verse 15. You, O Lord, you, Yahweh, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and Faithfulness. So we see kind of a connection here with, with Moses and, and Moses' interaction with the Lord. But in contrast to, to Moses, who intercedes on behalf of Israel's sins in Exodus, David has a u- more universal concern. So verse 9 says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. So David's prayer here in in the psalm recognizes the inclusion, the inclusion of all the nations coming before the Lord in praise and worship. So Dempster points out, I think this is a helpful connection, that, that it's, no coincidence that the, the next psalm then celebrates the universal dimension of the Lord's covenant. It's a similar pattern that we saw back in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah? We saw in chapter 53, the, a suffering servant from the line of David produced a universal reality of the benefits of the Davidic covenant in Isaiah 55. So from the suffering servant comes Blessing, praise, and glory from the nations, or that will be for all the nations. And in Psalm uh, 86, this is what Dempster writes he says, We see the prayers of a suffering David will result in the birth of many sons of God from all over the globe in a future Zion. So the fourth book of the Psalter. Begins like the third book with, a, with a, another psalm of wisdom in Psalm 90. And this one is interesting because it, it's a psalm of Moses. It's, it's written by Moses. And it points back to the, the wilderness experience of the Israelites as a time when, when the Israelites were consumed by God's wrath and judgment for their sin. And and we as readers, I think, need to ask why is this psalm placed here? Why is this psalm placed here in the context of the Psalter? And Dempster argues it functions in the in the Psalter and the and really the wider canonical context of the whole Old Testament, right, to suggest to the reader that just as the previous exile ended, so this exile And the present will also end. Just like God has led his people out of the wilderness into the land of promise, so too God will lead his people out of the exile back to the land of promise. That sort of thing. But the major theme in the fourth book of the Psalter is definitely that of kingship. And specifically the kingship of the Lord himself. So there's no human king on the throne of David in the exile, right, which is we're following the scope of the story and the Psalter specifically. Book three, you could say, is largely the the book of exile. It characterized book three. And so book four, we get a lot of psalms about Yahweh's kingship, Yahweh's reign, the Lord's reign. And the point is that God is still reigning on his throne in heaven, even during the exile. And we see over and over again that his reign is universal. You can see this in in Psalm 100. In Psalm 100, because Yahweh's reign is universal, then the nations can be invited to, to worship him, for they are his people too. But these psalms emphasizing the the rule of the Lord's kingship are not at the negation of a human Davidic king. Psalm 101 is another Davidic psalm that stresses the the ideal characteristics of a human king. Which I think harken back back to Deuteronomy 17 and the laws given for um, Israelite kingship. And Dempster says this suggests to us as readers that read in context, this psalm suggests that this new world order of divine kingship that, that we've seen in, in book, four, book four, that this kind of universal dominion will be presided over by a just, true Davidic monarch, by a just and faithful Davidic king. So, David's role, David's line, is not minimized in this fourth book because a just Davidic king will one day rule. And this book ends with with Psalm 106, which is a a great psalm that that surveys the history of Israel. And it's a confession of sorts, a confession of all the people's sins and, and rebellions against the Lord. And Dimster points out that it isn't an accident then that the psalm ends in verses 45 through 47 by noting the, the mercy of God and remembering his covenant in the past and issuing a plea that he may save his people and gather them from the exile. And so that this, this ties very nicely to the start of book 5 of the Psalter, which is the, the last book of the Psalter, as Psalm 107, as a psalm of, of thanksgiving that celebrates a return from exile from the four corners of the entire earth. So this, this notice again kind of this universal, universal dimension to this gathering language. So this is an answer really to the plea at the end of Psalm 106 for the Lord to gather God's people from among the nation. And the answer in Psalm 107 is that the Lord will gather the people from the nations, which launches the the major theme of the last book of the Psalter of restoration. Restoration through and, and hope in a future Davidic king. So restoration through and hope in a future Davidic king. And, and the next few Psalms that make up the, the beginning of Book 5 speak of the hope and the Davidic monarch. So, Psalm 108, we see Judah regarded as the, the scepter of God, right? The ruling staff of God, who will, who will have dominion over the surrounding nations. It's a clear echo back to the promise of, of Jacob back in Genesis 49. Psalm 110 depicts the, the installation of a new ruler whose enemies will be his footstool. So, a very important psalm in the New Testament. Um, it's, I, think it's, I think it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, which expounds this psalm. Um, so you could say we see this ruler in Psalm 10 who, who will crush his enemies' heads. A, a mighty warrior with a, with a resounding, powerful echo back to Genesis 3.15. Psalms 111 through 118 are a group of, of praise songs that follow the theme of, of God's kingship. We see a, a continuation of these praise songs in, in Psalms 135 through 137, which actually conclude with a... With a a note, a bitter note of exile, which is interesting. We'll get to that in a second in Psalm 137. But in between these two groupings of praise psalms, we have the gigantic Psalm 119. Gigantic in that it's really long. It's just a very long psalm. And it's important. It's gigantic in more than one way. Um, It's a, a psalm in praise of the Torah and in praise of God's law and the law of God. And then Psalms 120 through 134, are what are typically called the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent, which Dennis might be able to come up here and just teach this part since they've been studying this in the men's Bible study, the Psalms of Ascent. The, these celebrate the annual pilgrimage of the people of God to, to Zion or, or Jerusalem, Zion which is in Jerusalem, for worship of the Lord. So these Psalms function in the Psalter to show that the reason for the return from exile, right? the reason for the return is to go to Jerusalem, to go to Mount Zion to hear the law of God and to worship the Lord. So there's a spiritual ascent where the people of God are to worship the Lord in his house. So there's a lot of language of temple and house in these psalms. Um, And so you can think of it like, if the, the Psalter is developing this kind of scope of the Israelite history, and we're kind of getting to a return from exile in these Psalms, that the return from exile is not just for simply the, the prosper of the people, or the, for the people to do whatever they want to do. The reason for the exile is for them to return to true, proper worship of the Lord in his house, to right worship, and that's what we see in these Psalms. And then in the middle of the Psalms of the Saints, so Psalm 127, there is a psalm that, that celebrates building with the very famous verse in, in verse 1 Unless the Lord builds the house, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Dibster argues that that word house, like we've seen in, in Samuel and in other places, is not simply just an individual Israelite home, but the the temple and the dynasty or house of David. So the house of God, the temple, and the house of David that God builds both have um, eschatological significance, end times significance in the Psalms of Ascent. It's a clear theme that we see. And so Psalms... 135 through 137, again, they serve as a, a conclusion or a, a coda to the Psalms of Ascent, and re- again, return to the theme of praise songs that started this, this section in Psalm 111. But this section ends with a, a pretty bitter lament in Psalm 137, and this psalm sees the people of God in exile who, who wish for the destruction of their captors um, its placement here in, in the Psalter convey, it's as, if, it's as if the exile has the final word in the Psalter. But we see, obviously, there's more Psalms, 13 more, 14 more. There's a flurry of Davidic Psalms in, in 138 through 144 that provides an answer of sorts to this lament, concluding with a, with a praise psalm. And 145, that calls on all flesh, all humanity, to praise the name of the Lord. Dempster argues the the answer to the problem of exile is David and his future seed and line. It's still going to be David, which is why he calls it David, David, David. So the, the last five Psalms, 146 through 150, emphasize this as they're, they're a good and, and, and fitting way, I think, to end the Psalter. The, ref- the rep- repeated phrase through these psalms is, is praise the Lord. Um, they're, they're, there's, it's used frequently, I think, to start all of those psalms. Um, these are sometimes called the, the Hallelujah Psalms. And these are, are just great, wonderful songs of praise and give us an insight on what the, the last goal of creation is. And all created reality is, is going towards, is, is, is moving towards. Praise of the Lord, the creator and sustainer of all things. This is what history has always and, and is currently running towards. And this is what the, the end of the Psalter declares. Right? So, so I think it's just a, a very fitting end to the, the scope of the rough narrative that the Psalter displays. And so the, the Psalter as one book, if we look at it as one book, we we see the, the structure shows us the development of the, the prophetic themes or the prophetic commentary that we've seen of a of a renewed earth, a a renewed creation under a, a new Davidic leader, Davidic king, which is kind of just the big one-sentence main idea of the Psalms, which is, has been the big one-idea main sentence of all of this prophetic commentary and literature. So any questions about the Psalms? Mr. Dennis. Mm-hmm. I've heard those terms. I do not know what they're... I can't give you an accurate um, answer. I wish I could. But that seems like an easy thing we could look up. But I do think there are a series of praise psalms or hallelujah psalms earlier in the Psalter. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the effect it should have on us is exactly that as we're reading it. Oh, Oh, despair, but David, David, who is the key. Oh, no, we're kind of running out of time to open up the next section. So I'm thinking, yeah, I'll make an executive decision. We're going to end early because we're going to start in two weeks. um, Or we're going to take a break for two weeks. um, And I don't want to start a new set because we're going to start the wisdom literature. So there's going to be an introduction about the wisdom literature. Then I would just have to retell it in two weeks because we would all forget. So let's just end five minutes early. We can chat with each other um, before. The worship service. So thank you, and we will see you. You're dismissed.